Good evening, everyone. If you'd like to join me in the uh, refuges and precepts, I would appreciate that. On page four. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Buddhang saranaṅga chami. Dhammang saranaṅga chāmi Dhammang saranaṅga saranaṅga chāmi Dutiampi Buddhang saranaṅga chāmi Dutiampi Dhammang Saranaṅga Chāmi Dutiampi Dhammang Saranaṅga Chāmi Dutiampi Sāngāng Saranaṅga Chāmi Dutiampi Sāngāng Saranaṅga Chāmi Tatiampi Buddhang saranaṅga chāmi Tatiampi Buddhang saranaṅga chāmi Tatiampi Dhammang saranaṅga chāmi Tatiampi Dhammang saranaṅga chāmi Tatiampi Sangang saranaṅga chāmi Tatyāpi sangang saranaṅga chāmi This completes the going for the three refuges. Please repeat after me in the Pali scriptural language. Banyatipada vramini sakapadam samadhyami Banyatipada Adina Dana Ramini Skapadam Samadhyami Kamesu Michachara Ramini Skapadam Samadhyami 
Musavada Ramani Sakapadam Samadhi Ami Musavada Ramani Sakapadam Samadhi Ami Sura Mreya Maja Padatana Ramani Sakapadam Samadhi Ami Sura Please repeat after me in English. I undertake the precept to refrain from sources of livelihood that bring harm to other beings. I undertake the precept to refrain from acting out of ill will or taking satisfaction in the misfortune of others. I undertake the precept to refrain from acting out of ill will or taking satisfaction in the misfortune of others. I undertake the precept to be open-hearted and generous in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to be open-hearted and generous in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to act with loving kindness and compassion in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to act with loving kindness and compassion in all my relationships with others. I undertake the precept to live with mindfulness and follow the eightfold path through daily study, meditation, and reflection. I undertake the precept to live with mindfulness and follow the eightfold path. With these ten precepts, virtue becomes the vehicle for a happy existence. Through virtue, good fortune is attained. Virtue is the vehicle for liberation. Let us purify our virtue. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from ill will. May all beings be filled with loving-kindness. May all beings be truly happy. Thank you very much. (coughs) Does anyone have anything that they would like to comment on at the moment? Yes. Oh, sorry. Didn't tell you looking at. Um, I wasn't sure if it was worth bringing up. I was just, I was, <clears throat> it was kind of a curious thing. Um, over the last couple of days, um, when my concentration gets um, pretty strong, uh, I've noticed that my, I can, my body can start to distort um, physically, like it's a, like a um, kinesthetic sensation, mm-hmm. um, and it started where I could reposition my nose, where it was more kind of conducive <laughs> to being able to focus on the breath, mm-hmm. and it really worked well, and, and then I, I got that kind of dialed in, um, where I, and I could also bring it closer and further, but then this kind of weird byproduct, or unfortunate byproduct, I don't know if it's related, but if I follow a certain sensation, um, when the focus is, concentration is really good, 
um, I'll maybe start to feel some pressure on my face or something like that. But a lot of times it translates into my body starts to warp. And today it was so kind of bad that my arm felt like it was being pushed back to the point where it was kind of being pulled away from my body, which wasn't very pleasant. It wasn't painful. But I'm wondering if that's something worth exploring more, something that I can just turn off, something to just note anything at all. <laughs> that's actually... That's that's quite common. It's quite classic. Uh, now, when when you felt like your arm was, was your arm actually moving? Was your, no. It was exactly where it was. Yes. Yeah, it might have moved just like Up. you know, but no, nothing discernible. Yeah. It was just this very like <laughs> strong sensation of it being yeah. pulled back and my torso being pulled forward. That's actually that's one of those classic things that happens in meditation. It is a sign of concentration. Uh, and uh, it takes different forms and uh, occurs to different degrees. Uh, quite often, a person will feel as though they're falling over, and then uh, they, they check, and in fact, they're not. Uh, sometimes there is a very slight movement, like your head may be tilted just this far to one side, but it feels like you know you're. Yeah. So that's that's a classic sign of concentration. Uh, just um, just let it be. Just uh, it's it's not a problem. Just let it be, and it is. Uh, it, it's a sign of deepening concentration. It's a very positive sign, and it is the result of uh, undistractedly attending to the breath. So continue with uh, continue with undistracted uh, uh, meditation on the breath. So, yeah, I'm very pleased to hear that. Um, you know, some people some people report feeling their bodies in very contorted positions, you know, strange, impossible positions. Uh, it's also related to another thing that uh, people often feel. Is sometimes they feel as though their body's light and they're floating up off the cushion, you know. And they, they feel like if they were to open their eyes and look, they'd find that they're actually floating in the air. <laughs> they're not, but... It feels that way, you know. And when I'm in very deep concentration, very often I feel as though I'm standing, hmm. even though I know I'm, you know. Obviously, I, I, I didn't move, so I'm just sitting. But the uh, that uh, uh, kinesthetic sensation of body position is as though I'm uh, standing up. I, uh, so, thank you for for mentioning that. I, you know, helpful for other people to hear in case they experience something similar. And uh, and it is a good sign. I'd like to just say something regarding Adam. I <coughs> probably won't have the chance to do this, so I'll do it now. Thank you for your notes of uh, keeping this whole thing in mind going and moving forward. <laughs> Excellent. So I just wanted to. Good. Thank you, Adam. Yeah. I have a question that's more for the future, so it's not appropriate when we be here now. But <laughs> I was thinking. Um, well, I just realized today that it gets really peaceful, you know, being here, and we're it's getting calm. And, but one of the reasons is because we don't have to think about anything. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have to think about 
job hunting, you know, which is one of the things that's going on in the outside world. I don't have to think about anything, not even what I'm going to cook for dinner. <laughs> and so, in a way, that's I think that's supposed. That's one of the reasons for going on retreat. Mm -hmm. But I just wonder, like, what happens when you come back? Because I know that that kind of thinking changes. It's like a different. It uses the mind in a different way. That can cause mindfulness to just scatter, you know. So yeah. I was just curious if you have any tips. As to when you come out of the meditation. Yeah, as to how to how to both recognize that that state of mindfulness is, is being dissipated mm -hmm. and also how to deal with those things that it's necessary to deal with mm -hmm. in relationship to mindfulness somehow. Or is it possible to be mindful while at the same time thinking about all those things, which it probably is, but a... It's like any hints. <laughs> it, 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 it is possible, you know, to be... And... and uh, it it means that you need to be mindful of that process when it's happening. You're, you're mindfully aware that uh, those thought processes are are starting up and accelerating, and 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 your mind's going from one to the other. One of the things that uh, you might already experience sometimes when you're sitting in meditation is that. You're aware of the meditation object, but when, when you're fairly concentrated, you're also uh, paying attention to the mind, and you, you notice when the mind's starting to drift, or you notice whether mm -hmm. there's more or less distraction, or you might notice whether or not there's any dullness. So you're being aware of the mind while the mind is uh, being aware of the sensations of the breath. You have that kind of sensations and experience sometimes, mm -hmm. you'll have that more and more. Um, and what it does is it allows the mind to do one thing while your conscious awareness sort of takes one step back and observes what's going on. And as that develops, then it will allow you outside of uh, a, a meditation setting or outside of a, a meditation practice to be kind of continuously aware of what's going on as your mind is uh, thinking about the things of the world and you know, making plans or even um, uh, talking to people because and that's very useful because when that happens uh, and, and you're sort of aware of your mind as your mind is generating conversation, then you start to become aware of the motivations that are behind the things you say and the way you say them. And, and you start to get uh, a lot of insight into <laughs> what it is that makes you be the kind of person that you are, what's driving you beneath mm -hmm. the surface. So, as far as tips, uh, just just that one, that to the degree that you can, without it disturbing your actual ability to focus on the meditation object, just try to be continuously aware of what the mind is doing. You know, whether the mind mm -hmm. is is enjoying the peacefulness of it, or starting to feel restless about it, or you know, whatever. Just doesn't matter. Whatever happens to be going on, just be mindful of, of it and create that create that habit. It seems like it's possible to be mindful of stuff that 
a lot of people would be kind of disbelieving about it. Because, and I'd like, is this really, what's this about, you know? Because it's possible, I think, there's been times like I've been aware of the impulse to think before the thought actually happens. Mm -hmm. The pull of, yes. of a thought, or the, the or, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting, since like one can become aware of things that usually, at least in our culture, I thought of it as basically being unconscious. Well, a lot of these things, I think, are quite appropriately described as subconscious, mm -hmm. meaning they're normally some happening beneath the level of our actual conscious awareness, but we're capable of being conscious mm -hmm. of them. You know, as we learn to become more fully aware, then we're able to perceive things uh, that previously... Uh, they, they weren't really accessible. So. Okay, well, good, good things here. Uh, the other night, when three of you weren't here, we talked some about uh, about. Uh, resistance, laziness, procrastination, which is considered one of the five hindrances, and skeptical doubt, which is another one of the hindrances that's closely related to it. And I don't I don't think we necessarily need to talk about those again. But I thought I might talk a little bit about some of the other hindrances which uh, you most likely have been aware of uh, as you've been meditating and just to uh, get a perspective on them. Uh, one of them is, uh, you know, there's five hindrances, and I mentioned two, uh, uh, resistance or sloth and torpor as it's normally called, and uh, skeptical doubt. Uh, a third one that I'll mention right now is what we call worldly desire or desire that belongs to the sense realm. And in, uh, in the technology of, uh, in the technical language of Buddhism and, and meditation, uh, the sense realm means this world that we live in, the world of the senses. So, Worldly desire refers to all of those different desires that we have that preoccupy, uh, what makes it a hindrance is that we are so preoccupied with uh, the de desires we have related to uh, this, this perceived world and our place in it. Of course, one kind of desire that we have is for material possessions, and we can really uh, see how much of our time and our mental energy goes into thinking about the material, the property aspects of our life and the things that we 
feel like we need to do or the concerns we have about being able to hold on to the proper we, property we have and acquire more property, uh, more things, more stuff, have more money, have a sense of security that we'll have access to those things when we need it. So you can see as a hindrance in meditation, whenever you find yourself having thoughts about, you mentioned one, you know, looking for a job, that's really, that's a, that's a thought that comes out of worldly desire in the sense of, uh, in, in the particular aspect of the desire for things. But uh, can you sort of see what this covers? The whole gamut of uh, material things in one form or another that we uh, either want or need and our concerns about obtaining them uh, and holding on to them. And you see how, of course, and it's obvious how that's a uh, hindrance in meditation because you're sitting there trying to concentrate and these thoughts come up about you know your projects and your plans and uh, uh, you know your 201ks. And <laughs> Do they still bother you to this day? <laughs> <laughs> As they shrink, they'll be 100.5ks. <laughs> So anyway, so is that the enigma wrapped in a conundrum? The fact that we are sitting here trying to attain, attain a higher sense of self, plugging in obviously into another universe, but yet having to live on this plane of reality. I mean, that's the conflict, isn't it? And that where you are. Trying to blend the two, it seems to me. Yes. Because there is no this totally or that. I mean, we have to blend them to. And, and it's, it's finding the path to do that. Now, it's interesting that the, the, the uh, path the Buddha chose was he personally gave up all of that stuff. <laughs> you know, uh, and it has been the traditional path of the ordained sangha that they give up the things of the world and rely upon uh, alms for their food and and uh, uh, robes originally their robes were made out of uh, the discarded cloths uh, of other people they didn't want them and they would sew them together Um, and that's why uh, yeah, traditional robes today, at least in Theravadan countries, are made out of patches sewn together. Although they're brand new, uh, they're cut off of brand new bolts, cut into pieces, squares, and sewn together. But it goes back to the original uh, idea that the robes of a monk were uh, discarded, made out of the discarded fabrics uh, of other people. That's one that is one approach very few people nowadays are willing to 
go to that extreme in order to uh, relieve themselves of the concerns related to material objects. Is that because the society doesn't really support it? I mean, in Asia they do, and that right. they actually do give up these things and, yeah. and you know, live in monasteries and are given free passage anywhere they go and food. And is it just our Western culture doesn't uh, deal with that very well? That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody were to choose that path, they'd just join everyone else sleeping under the freeway overpasses and going to soup kitchens because, you know, <laughs> there really, there really, really isn't much alternative. But that is, that is one extreme. And, you know, there, there are all, all kinds of other, you know, where do you draw the line? Many, many people will choose to live very simply because they become aware of the degree to which the preoccupation with material things chews up their time and their energy, creates stress, uh, uh, all sorts of emotional things, puts them in situations with uh, the relationships with other people that can become very difficult. and of course, one of the one of the things that's very significant is that your mind formulates an idea that I need this thing or I want this thing, and you become very possessive and attached to it. Uh, the longer it takes, the more difficult it is to obtain. The stronger the attachment, and of course, in in our modern world, money is the common denominator. So. Uh, very often, the thing that a person wants uh, becomes reduced to having enough money to have the thing that one wants, uh, which very easily becomes having enough money to have the things that one wants. Um, and then that can go beyond the specifically identified, well, I, I this, 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 and this, to, well, there's always things that I want, so I need more and more money because I'm always going to need more and more things. And you see, uh, the whole point of it is you see how it is a preoccupation, how it begins to dominate the mind, how it begins to condition the mind to a kind of avariceness. Mm -hmm. And it also uh, tends to close us off, too, from generosity. when you formulate a goal that you're striving towards, which is, you know, this is, uh, I need this much money to have these things, then that really gets in the way of being generous and sharing. You know, it's like, uh, it's, it's very hard to give that up when your whole psyche has been uh, focused on obtaining it. And uh, spend all that time working to obtain it. But I think the point, you know, granting that living in the society that we do and having physical bodies with needs, we can't really very easily forego 
uh, our concerns with material objects. And most of us are householders, have families, uh, and that that brings a whole, that requires a whole new level of things. Because even if you uh, even if you personally want to live as simply as possible, if you have other people that uh, share resources with you and are dependent upon you in one way or another, then you know you're you're including. Uh, your perception of their needs and that which drives your uh, avariceness. You know, hope you don't mind if we call it avariceness, uh, because I think that I think it's appropriate to think of it as avariceness, e- even if you're trying to live as simply as possible. Because the the connotation is that you you're following uh, an inner compulsion. To obtain the things that you perceive that that you need. So, in in the world that we live in, and and as physical beings in a physical world, uh, a certain amount of avariciousness uh, is a necessary part of our our mental makeup. We have to be concerned. With obtaining uh, material things uh, uh, to some degree, but you can see that how this is an, uh, a hindrance to the spiritual life. This in, in meditation, it's a hindrance because you have these concerns, and you go to meditate, and you sit down, and these thoughts come up, and they distract you, and you have to discipline yourself to just. Let go of them, you know. It's so so tempting to think about these things, and so you have to let go of them and bring your attention back until finally they stop intruding. But hopefully, that experience in meditation can make you aware of the degree to which preoccupation with those things is a hindrance uh, in the rest of your life as well. And uh, granted that you can't just decide to let go of it all and negate it, you can at least see the tremendous value of bringing it into uh, some sort of, some level of balance and control and really uh, not letting it control you. So, but that's only one aspect of sense desire, material thing. Another one is uh, the pleasures that we experience through our physical bodies in the physical world, and of course the uh, the unpleasantness that uh, uh, we also experience that we would like to avoid. And you can see how all of our preoccupations with that, too. Uh, are hindrances in the same way. We experience that in meditation. Um, I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about. You're meditating and you become aware of your preoccupation uh, both in the immediate present and in the same way with those material objects. The preoccupation that you carry over from your regular life into, into your meditation practice where thoughts related to this come up. 
I need to do this to satisfy that desire for pleasure. I need to do this to avoid that source of pain. And just it's not just material things, but it's also all of the different kinds of pleasures that we seek and uh, pains that we wish to avoid of, of the many different kinds. We're preoccupied with those as well. Another thing that to do with the sensual, uh, the, the the sense realm, realm of sense desire, is uh, how we are thought of by others. Are we liked? Are we respected? Um, and. Do you not find that that is another thing that chews up another uh, 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 portion of your limited uh, time and energy? Is your your concern with your social standing, your standing amongst your friends or your coworkers, or so on and so forth? And of course, these things are related too. Some of the material things that we want, uh, uh, we want in order to. Uh, sustain or, or uh, elevate our social standing. This is another kind of preoccupation that we discover uh, it shows up in the meditation. The things that we have thoughts of are, are to do with our, our standing in the world. We, we have ambitions. You know, why do you do things? Do you do things only to make money? No, you don't. We do things to be appreciated and to be acknowledged and, and to uh, satisfy those various needs, basically of our ego, of our sense of self. It's a different. It's another kind of possession. Uh, if you think about it, we tend to define ourselves in terms of our various kinds of possessions. So we define ourselves in terms of material possessions, but we also define ourselves in terms of those qualities and characteristics of the self that we perceive that we are. I am this kind of person. I have these kinds of qualities. I do these kinds of things. And this is another uh, preoccupation that... Uh, takes up more more time and energy. So perhaps it's really clear if you think about it how much of your waking hours are probably spent preoccupied with thinking and doing that is just simply regarded, uh, simply related to uh, things of the sense realm, fulfilling desires of the sense realm. And of course, we're encouraged by that by everyone else too. This this is the norm of the world. You see it intrude in meditation. 
as just those distracting thoughts that come up that are related to these things. After you've been practicing for a little while, it becomes less so. Your mind calms down. The constant stream of thoughts related to worldly things begins to diminish, become less and less frequent. Until at some point, they may rarely intrude at all. If you consider what causes this to come about, it is your improved skill in uh, sustaining your attention, uh, concentrating your mind uh, more or less single-pointedly on your meditation object that causes this constant stream of of thoughts to gradually uh, fade away and become less, less frequent, less intense. Uh, less distracting. Do you find that? Have you found that yet, uh, Katie? No. But that's where you want to go, though, right? Actually, what happens so far with me, because I, I have a lot of junk in my subconscious, I think, is when I get into a really concentrated state, then something pops up from my subconscious. Mm-hmm. Have to deal with it. Yeah, and that kind of thing pops up, right? Yeah. Uh, what does this suggest to you about what's happening in your subconscious? My inhibitions that keep it subconscious are weakening, but that doesn't say what happened in my subconscious. Well, I, I think more importantly what it's telling you is that your subconscious mind really never stops thinking about these things. No. Right? Even when you're fully concentrated. Well, the more fully concentrated you become, then the less so. But if you, if you sort of... Uh, if you consider, you know, before you sit down to meditate, your mind's filled with all of these thoughts coming one after another, right? Mm-hmm. And you sit down to meditate, and they they seem to become uh, less present, except that every now and then a thought emerges fully formed. I mean, if you look at the nature of the thought, it doesn't appear like it's the product of a thought process. It's not something that just started up in that instant that you became aware of it. Right, definitely. It emerges into consciousness as a fully formed thought, uh, sometimes as a completely new idea. Right? Yeah. And, and this is common. This is, this is something that's really well known. Uh, 
some of the most famous uh, discoveries in science, for example, have happened. Somebody's had a problem. They think about it, and they think about it, and they think about it, and they forget about it, and all of a sudden the solution just pops into their mind. So this shows us that that level of the mind where we're consciously aware of the thought processes that are taking place is just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. And the deeper levels of the mind are always turning away, thinking about these things. Except that the more that you, the more successful you are in uh, something like a meditation practice, then that does gradually begin to calm down. First, first at the surface level where it's obvious what's available to conscious awareness, you see the calming there and you begin to experience some degree of of peacefulness there. But then, when all of that activity beneath the surface, when that begins to slow down too, then you start to experience a really profound kind of concentration. And that's... That's that's really what you're after, because as you practice meditation, you say, oh, my concentration is pretty good. And you might say, well, I don't know how I could really deepen it a whole lot more. But you can in the sense that there is still an awful lot of activity going on out of sight, so to speak. And the evidence of that is these thoughts that you know keep showing up. Even when you become fairly concentrated, they, they keep popping up here and there. They sort of float around the edges of your awareness and, you know, and... Those produce a, a certain agitation of the mind. That once you once you're able to let go of, then you can go much deeper in your concentration. One of the things most important about that is that you are training the part of your mind that has just been going and going and going with this stuff all day long, every day for years and years to shut it down every now and then. I mean, really that's what we're after when we seek certain kinds of recreation that totally preoccupy our attention. What they do is they cause that part of our mind to quit being so uh, so busy with returning the same old stuff all the time over and over again. Yes. One of the things I've been noticing is I've been kind of interested I mean I've been really focused on not indulging theory um, having letting my mind slip into theorizing about what's going on and all that mm-hmm. um, but despite that during walking meditation sometimes in between I've been thinking about a few things a few trends I've noticed and now one of them is related to what we're talking about, where I've been trying to kind of pinpoint where these moods come from. So mm-hmm. generally I can see more distinctly every day um, where directly where a thought will produce agitation or some elicit an emotion almost immediately. It can be a thought that's just a spark of a thought. And I, I, the residual of that is much more noticeable than even the thought. But 
I'm concentrated enough I can trace back to the source. But I'm really interested, based on what we're talking about, um, you know, what I told you one of the reasons I'm really drawn to meditation is working with my own kind of mood disorder stuff. And I'm curious um, about this idea of mood, kind of protracted mood, being related to something under the surface that's constantly running mm -hmm. some background operation. Um, and I guess I was just curious if you could talk a little bit more about that. And also, um, I've noticed when I get to a certain point of concentration, it seems like I'm, I can, I'm aware that there's nothing, there's no other thoughts, you know, at a certain level there's multiple thoughts maybe, and then at a certain level, when I'm focused enough on the meditation object, I may be able to pinpoint what thoughts are still present because there's so few of them, or maybe just one, which is the thought of what thought is present right now, usually. Yes. Okay. But it sounds like there is still something operating that I'm still not yet aware of, maybe several things. And I'm wondering if that's if that's related kind of um, to mood and, and to that kind of just ongoing stuff that's so hab habituated that mm -hmm. it's really hard to detect. You, you're pointing to something here that is uh, quite significant. <laughs> yes, there's, uh, there is uh, so much going on in your mind all the time beneath the surface or in, in your minds. There's, you know, there, there is uh, well. What we've been talking about are sort of the obvious preoccupations that everyone has and everyone knows that they have, and we've just been able to see through, you know, what Peggy and I were just talking about that, in fact, it's that's going on even when you're not aware of it at a subconscious level. So the question is, what else is going on all the time at a subconscious level? Uh, the fact is that there are all kinds of thought processes that are going on in at the subconscious level all of the time, and they're having a tremendous effect that we don't see and appreciate uh, on everything on, on how we how we perceive things, how we respond to things, the decisions that we make, and the moods that we have. Now, most of us know from experience that you get into a particular mental state and there are thought processes that you're consciously aware of that perpetuate those, those mental states that perpetuate those moods, right? And uh, you might say to yourself, oh, I just want to stop thinking about that. And you, you try to stop the thought, but next thing you know, it's back there again. Now that's at the conscious level. So we've already seen one example of things that we're aware of taking place at the conscious level, discovering that they're happening beneath the surface. But where do these thoughts come from, the ones that were at the conscious level? What brought us into that particular mood, mental state uh, in the first place? These same kind of thoughts are going on, and they're maintaining those different moods and, and mental states. Uh, so many. De depression, anger, you know, take your pick. Uh, fear, insecurity. Even when we're not 
having thoughts directly related to our insecurities uh, that we're consciously aware of, the the thought processes that give rise to those insecurities are actually active and functioning at some other level. And so this is what you're talking about, right? Two things here about what you said. One is what I've just mentioned that uh, you you correctly identified that that often the mental states that you're in are the result of processes that are taking place uh, out of sight. But the other thing is that in the process of your practice, you're trying not to necessarily necessarily think and analyze. But you are nevertheless having certain insights into the way your mind works and insights into perhaps why you have the kind of experiences that you do. This, the part of your mind that its, its job is to analyze information and reorganize it and organize it and, and produce these different kinds of thoughts concepts, relationships, it creates our view of the world, what it it really does, that this conceptualizing, thinking part of our mind, that it's mostly preoccupied most of the time with other things, but in meditation, when you are just simply observing what's going on, that's data that's being fed into this part of your mind that figures things out. And that's where these insights come from. And then they pop up and you, you, you all of a sudden understand something. Um, now that's something that is actually definitive of a certain stage of meditation. When a person gets to the point where they, uh, they their uh, concentration is good enough that they uh, almost never lose awareness of the meditation object. And in fact, they pretty much can always remain primarily focused on it. What tends to happen then is that they have these thoughts emerge in the form of beautifully clear insights into things. Beautifully clear insights into why I am the way I am why the world is the way it is, what this thing, what this particular teaching of the Dhamma is about. But, you know, and those, those are, are wonderful thoughts. Of course, in meditation, there can be a very strong desire to take this fascinating insight, this new level of understanding that has emerged and pursue it and to run with it. And... Um, I'll just warn you what happens when you do with that, when you do that. You know, a really well idea comes up, and so you decide to go with it, and you explore it, and, and you, you know, you, you've got a great understanding, and you kind of reach the, the end of where it's going to take you. And then you say, oh, well, I better go back to meditating on my breath. And you have a sense of restlessness. It's like, well, it's just really hard to go back to doing exactly what you were doing that caused this insight to rise. Have you had that experience? I'm trying to think. 
feel like I've had something really similar to that several times. But well, it's very common for meditators to, you know, to some degree or another, allow themselves to spend time engaging in a fascinating thought process. And uh, the interesting thing is that when it comes to a completion, it leaves them with a feeling of restlessness. You know, it's very hard to go back to the meditation object at that point. But the other effect that it has is more ideas will come up. And they, they look like, they also look like wonderful insights. <coughs> and then there's the temptation to go with this one as well, and then the next one, and the next one. But what I what I have found, and what other people have found, is when that happens, if you reflect on these later, you'll find out that a lot of them are just kind of trash ideas. And it's a game your mind is playing that, that that's entertainers entertain ourselves with interesting things to think about. So that uh, uh, one of the one of the problems we need to deal with in meditation is when you start having insights and you're tempted to start thinking about, for example, how uh, how these uh, these kinds of subliminal thoughts may be determining your mental states, and you might want to pursue that. That if you allow yourself to do that, then uh, you, you might get into a pattern where you end up doing more and more thinking and less and less meditating. I suggest, and th- these are some very valuable insights that come up, and I suggest that what you do is set them aside and go back to them uh, on another occasion specifically for that purpose. And there's a kind of meditation called analytical meditation where the whole intent is you sit down for a few minutes, you concentrate your mind, and then you take a topic, a subject, that you want to investigate analytically, and you just go right into it. Mm-hmm. And you use the concentration. You d- the reason that you have these insights and the reason that you can think them through so clearly is that your mind is focused. And it is that there is less going on. So you can take advantage of that. But you've got to balance <coughs> the... Uh, You've got to balance doing that against continuing uh, to deepen the very process which allows that to come up in the first place. I think I remember you saying, because I remember you mentioning this before now, um, that if they're truly important insights, that you won't forget them. That's right. Because that's the paranoia, is that you'll lose them if you don't start attending to them right away. But... That's right. I I'm, it's, I don't want to go off on a tangent. I'm just I've been really um on the uh, on retreat trying to figure out how to maintain a high degree of focus and stay mindful um, and not deviate and lose the concentration throughout the day. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm kind of interested. I don't want to start doing analytic meditation on retreat. Yeah. But. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious if maybe tonight or another night you talk more about various ways of maintaining concentration and mindfulness throughout all these different activities. Um, 
but right now I'm actually just kind of interested in, I, I felt like, uh, I do research and I'm go, you know, trying to get into graduate school and it's, it requires you to be attending to your problem of interest pretty much 24 hours a day to be an effective researcher. At least that's how I see effective graduate students operating. And I'm kind of interested in, in ways to work on ideas. Mm -hmm. Because mindfulness to me, I'm starting to understand it differently as time goes on, but a lot of times it seems to me being completely in the present or, te or, or attending to uh, 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 external stimuli or something that's not related to analytic recursive thought, um, recursive thought. Um, but it sounds like there is ways to do that where it's still mindful, but you're still theorizing. Um, so how do you, how does that differ? How do you do that? Yeah, well, we, we can talk about that. Yes, the challenge is <clears throat> in uh, analytical discursive thought, it tends to be very engaging and absorbing and not to leave a lot of bandwidth of the mind for just being mindful of the mind's own processes mm -hmm. and of what's going on, <coughs> being in the present. And, and there's a similar thing that, that you'll notice that when you're not talking to somebody, you can have strong mindfulness, and then when you begin having a conversation, you know it's it's the same thing. That verbal uh, verbalization tends to be very make it very difficult to sustain mindfulness. <coughs> but that's the. Uh, I, I think the only way that you can. What what you really need to do is to be able to bring your practice into your daily life so that you are able to be mindful even while engaged in uh, those kinds of activities. And so in order to do that, you need to take advantage of the opportunity that you have in things like this retreat and in your daily meditation practice to cultivate that really strong uh, mindfulness at the same time that you're being very focused. And so, uh, yeah, absolutely. Retreats are not the time to do analytical meditations. When you're in your daily practice, you know, then you can have these great ideas come up and then you can make it part of, you can, even if you're a busy graduate student, you can try to fit in some time to do some analytical meditation to pursue these things more deeply. But the other problem, though, <coughs> of, of how, do you, how do you do something that engages your conscious capacity to such a high degree and yet still... Uh, still have a conscious awareness of, of, of your own mind and not just of the object. And the only way to do that is to expand the conscious capacity that you bring to the task. So. <clears throat> and to have the skill of essentially having some part, some part of your awareness that sort of steps back from the rest. <clears throat> yes? I have a question about... I was thinking about this um, state of being overstimulated that can happen. And there was a little bit happening tonight because I was trying to listen to what you were saying, be open to what you were saying. Between the sound of the wind and the sound of the cat, it was starting to get a little that way. <laughs> kind of overstimulating. And 
It seems like it is possible to like kind of just move away from that kind of state or block it out a little bit or something. But then that felt like that was kind of anti-mindful <laughs> in a certain way. But at the same time, I don't think mindfulness equates to that state of being totally overstimulated. And I was just curious about that. Yeah, mindfulness. <clears throat> mindfulness doesn't mean trying to take everything in at once because mm-hmm. that is overstimulating. It means uh, it means having an awareness of what's going on in the present, and you know, there's always so much going on in the present that you can't really absorb it all. Mm-hmm. So, what's most important? What's going on in the present? And ultimately, uh, the, the mindfulness that, that's most important is what is happening in your own mental processes, in your own mental uh, emotional reactions. Like when you're trying to listen to me, and there's the sound of the wind, and the cat, you know, you don't try to be mindful of what I'm saying, mindful of the wind and mindful of the cat at the same time. Mm-hmm. What you do is you... Uh, what your mindfulness, uh, the, the power of your mindfulness is focused on is how your mind is responding to the situation of having these different demands. Uh, so the, the mental state that is arising in the moment. What is your mind actually doing right now? And, and uh, through that will come some understanding of why why it's doing that. I mean, it's very simple. I, I want to listen to you, and these other sounds are distracting me, so as a result, mm-hmm. I'm feeling a bit of annoyance. Well, aha, annoyance, because here I am, goal-centered and uh, frustrated, and so therefore the mind reacts with a certain amount of annoyance. I think sometimes it's a feeling of being, like, just scattered and dissipated and lost to be able to concentrate. Yeah. Like I was thinking I went to a <coughs> the other day, her roommate was home and her roommate was watching TV, and we were in the kitchen, but there was not really a door, it was anything, and so the television was loud, and it was like really hard to like, I found that I really couldn't be open to her and talk to her on the level that I wanted to. Yes, right. Because the television sound was there, and it was like, to be open in that way was just this you know how television is loud. Like yes, I, I sure do. Whatever going through, it was. It didn't feel like it was possible, you know. And finally, I ended up just leaving and thinking, you know, I should just left right away, <laughs> yeah. rather than hanging around, you know, and, and hearing that. But. Well, the the mindfulness part is, you know, and one thing that's useful is uh, is that method of noting. So, you know, if you can just summarize what's happening in the moment with a single word, you know, it's not like scattered, scattered, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. it sort of brings you into focus on that. And that's practicing mindfulness. What the mindfulness will allow you to do, instead of uh, acting with minimal awareness, allowing an emotional tension to build up and uh, precipitately uh, leaving a situation, you know, when you're mindful and it all comes together, oh, you know, it's the, the noise of the television, then you can often find a very, by being fully present, you can find a solution or, or at least uh, 
a more appropriate way, <laughs> at least a more appropriate way to deal with the situation. I mean, sometimes there's nothing more that when it becomes really clear to you, so clear that you're able to articulate it and say, you know, I'm sorry, I'd really like to talk to you, but I can't with that television going. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's so much better than letting a whole lot of irritation build up and, and then you... Uh, well, I kind of did talk about it, but she was just kind of like, well, can't you just black it out? And, and then I realized that I couldn't. I realized, like, well, I could have, like, a really superficial conversation and just black yeah. it out, but I couldn't have a really dumb conversation yeah. and black it out. But, um... Yeah, because this kind of leads to another question, and I hope you don't mind. But there seems there's a lot of things that are, like, really similar, but they're not the same. Yes. And I guess they go to the common near enemies. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. That mm-hmm. That's right, near enemies. But, um... Because there's a state of being really open and aware and mindful. And then there's a state of kind of being, like, psychically annihilated. Like being which? Psychically annihilated, like... Which is closer to what that overstimulation feels like. Well, it just feels like you're just... You're just feels like getting run over, you know? I mean, literally. Scattered, I mean, overwhelmed. I don't think that's, I mean, maybe that sounds exaggerated, but that's the feeling of it, of being like, well, I remember an experience I had that was really painful, and it was like I was gone. Because well, it was so painful. It was like, literally, I was gone. And that's like a similar state to a meditation state, but it's not the same. It seems different. It seems like one of those close cousin things. That feeling of what you're calling psychic annihilation, or, mm-hmm. you know, um, that's not mindfulness, mm-hmm. but it's something that you can be mindful of. Uh, remember, you know, any time uh, people talk about mindfulness, they talk about it being non-judgmental, mm-hmm. it being just open, accepting, and non-judgmental. And um, it means there's a certain amount of equanimity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also means there's a certain amount of, of uh, non-resistance to... Uh, so, it's just seeing what's there. I mean, seeing that your mind is scattered all... That may be all you can see. As mm. you, your mind is so, is so dissipated by what's going on that you can't see anything else. But if you can just have that taste of equanimity and identify, oh, this is this is the state that's happening. And hold on to that. The, it's, uh, yeah, the, I think you, I, I think you're correct in identifying a near enemy of mindfulness. And a near enemy means something that Masquerades as something that's desirable, but actually uh, has the opposite so effect. So they have some of the same elements. Yeah. But it's just additional elements that make it different. The, our power of mindfulness can allow us to be extremely aware of uh, anything, and sometimes of many things at once. And that's what makes scattering of the mind a near enemy to mindfulness, because it imitates that, and it can, you know. It can masquerade as mindfulness. Trying to attend to more things that you can attend to isn't mindfulness. But just retreating from that to just 
like I say, if you can just summarize your mental state in a single thought, then uh, that can help you to find uh, the, the mindfulness in, in the mix of everything that's there. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I know there's that practice that I've done before of, of what you do, you just say whatever's happening in your mind. Like if you're angry, you say anger. Yes, right. it, it sounds kind of like that practice. Yeah, it is, and it's for the same thing, it, it, for the same reason. Like, anger is a strong emotion. It mm-hmm. fills our minds. It creates all kinds of thoughts. Uh, we attach to it, and everything else. How are you? How can you be mindful uh, in a in a rage? Well, if you can just identify it and label it, uh, and and I think it's good to not just say anger, but to say, you know, anger arising, because for me at least adding the word arising to anger creates that objective distance. It's, mm-hmm. it's not because even though you just say anger, the thought behind it could be, I'm angry, and then you're not really, mm. you know, you're being caught by it. So, so yes, it's exactly the same thing. Find, you can find uh, just uh, in, in, in the storm of the moment, if you can find a label for it, and if that's all the mindfulness you're capable of, that's a great start. I guess I, yeah. And one thing I was thinking about is that I would guess that physiologically those two states are really different. They it's are. kind of helpful sometimes for me to think that way. And to, it helps me make that distinction that I would guess that that state of being overstimulated and that state of being mindful are physiologically really different. They're, they are very different. And I would even suggest that if we could look at the functioning of the brain, we'd find that it's a completely different part of the brain that is involved in the mindfulness aspect from what's involved in, in the overstimulation. Which part of the brain do you think? What's that? Which part of the brain do you think? Oh, you want to know my theory? Um, <laughs> <okay>. Sorry. <laughs> There's a, a part of the mind that is, uh, or pardon not mind, part of the brain, part of the cortex of the brain that is called a general association area. And all of your different sensory input goes into this one general association area where it sort of, it, it tries to create uh, a coherent picture from what you see and hear and feel and everything simultaneously. And that's the part that gets overloaded. But it has a counterpart on the other side of the brain, one hemisphere, uh, you know, and, and in essence we have two brains. And the uh, parts of them are, are kind of mesh. And I think mindfulness is when the general association on in one hemisphere looks at the stuff that's happening in the general association of the other hemisphere. <laughs> which, which, which part is this that you're thinking yeah. of? Yeah. Oh, which, which, which part of the brain? What's that? General associ- oh. What's the Latin? What's the Latin? <laughs> what, what, which part are you talking about? I'm just curious. Uh, general association area in uh, in the lateral parietal cortex. Okay. Yeah. Or something similar to that that's functioning in a similar way. So, but um, 
I, I, the, the core idea has less to do with which particular part of the brain, but the bicamerality of it. That one side can monitor what's going on, on the other side. Are you familiar with Marvin Minsky's uh, Society of Mind? I recommend that to you before you start. <laughs> before you start uh, graduate school, <laughs> society of mine, and um, uh, he 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 talks about uh, a, a brains and b brains, and <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think that uh, I think that some of the things that we do in meditation are cultivating different different parts of the brain, different uh, mental functions in that way. So I think mindfulness, mindfulness is really one part of your, one part of your mind based in one part of your brain monitoring what's going on uh, somewhere else, perhaps even everywhere else. Walking meditations over with. I hope you enjoyed it. Now it's time to sit. <laughs> Let's sit. But uh, I know you've already been sitting for a while, so please stretch first and uh, take a few minutes to get all the kinks out, and then we'll sit. <laughs>